Let's turn in our Bibles to Romans 9. We'll be dealing with verse 11. Sometimes, as a preacher, the hardest thing to do is to find out, to figure out where to, how far to go. Should I go pick up the next verse, or the next verse, or three verses, or just one verse? And maybe I need to preach two or three messages on one verse. Uh, this was one of those hard ones, because verse 12 and 13 kind of tie into verse 11. So I think the next time we meet, I'll be dealing with 12 and 13, but tying it back into verse 11. But today we're only, only going to be dealing with verse 11. But let's let's read the word here, and I will say a word of prayer. Uh, we'll do our review and get right into it. It says, For though the twins were not yet born, and had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose according to his choice might stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just pray now that as we open your word here, Lord, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, Lord, and that you would teach us through your word. Uh, just pray that uh, the preacher is invisible during this time and that your name is high and lifted up, that people see you in this time and see how you are a good, loving, and sovereign God. And we're so grateful to be called your people ask for your blessings in this time, Lord, in the name of Christ. So let's back up a little bit and go through our review. Um, how far I want to back up. <laughs> if y'all remember Romans 8, well, first Paul's dealing with his gospel. He's, he's explaining the gospel to the Roman Christians there. And remember the Roman Christians that he's expounding on the gospel to. He's, so the gospel, that should teach one thing for sure, is that the gospel isn't only for unbelievers, it's also for us. But he's expounding on the gospel. He gives us the bad news first in Romans 1 through 3. And then he gets into the good news, the good news of the gospel, the good news of justification by faith alone. And then he starts to deal with some objections to that. Some objections that if, if sin, where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound more? And obviously the answer to that question was, God forbid, may it never be. And he dealt with that in chapter uh, 6. And in chapter 7 he deals with the question of the law. And we, we went through that, um, that hard portion there. But what we learned kind of is that even though Paul wanted to do things, he wasn't doing them. And the things that he didn't want to do, those were the things that he was doing. That's kind of the gist of Romans chapter 7. And in chapter 8, it's pretty much a proof that even though I'm doing the things that I ought not to be doing, there's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. If I'm in Christ, though I do the stuff that I don't want to do, there's no condemnation. Christ, Christ took it all. And then we saw kind of the, the, kind of the bookends to Romans chapter 8 was there's no condemnation, and then there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. So his last statement was there's, there's no, nothing that can separate us from the love of God. So, and as I mentioned before, when you come to Romans 9, now he's dealing with what's called a theodicy. It's a vindication of the justice of God. And the vindication is, what about the Jews? We're not the Jews in the love of God, and now they're being separated from the love of God. 
So that's what Paul does for the next three chapters is answer that question, what about the Jew? The Jews were the people of God, and now it seems that they're not the people of God. Hence why you're writing a book to Gentiles. But Paul answers that question. We saw that he's been dealing with it, but we saw the other week that not all Israel is Israel. Just because they're part of the nation did not mean that they are actually Israel. And then we saw last week that it was through the son of promise. That there's two sons. Remember, Abraham had Ishmael first, but he wasn't the son of promise. So it wasn't the firstborn son that was the son of promise. It was the secondborn son that was the son of promise. And then Isaac had twins. And it wasn't the first one that came out, Esau, but the second one that came out, Jacob, whose name is changed to Israel, by whom that promise went. So both times we see it wasn't the firstborn son, which was their um, culture. The firstborn son inherits the blessing. But both of those cases, God used the secondborn son. And then we come to this text here, and it says, for though the twins were not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, in order that the, God's purpose, and it actually, the word choice in, in uh, the NASB is actually election. That God's purpose according to election might stand. Not because of works, but because of Him who calls. So I have three points today. First point is God's decrees are before man's decisions. The second point is God's decree of election is unconditional. And the third point is God is the one who decrees. So obviously in all three of those points I have the word decree so I'm going to give you a little slight definition of it real quick because I'll be saying it throughout the whole message and if you don't have a clue what decree means you won't have a clue what I'm saying. But it, it means to, to ordain is another way you could say it. A lot of people use the word ordain there. Or spoke into being. Remember God when he said, in the beginning God said, he spoke it into being. That was his decree. It's something that God said would happen. So if God says it's going to happen, that's his decree. That means it's going to happen. So when I use that word decree, that's what I mean. So the first point here is God's decrees are before man's decisions. Notice in the text it says, For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad. Remember our history lesson from last week. We went through a little, little bit of history lesson through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Ishmael, Esau. We saw all of that from, from the book of Genesis last week. And this is why I gave that history lesson. Because it's important to understand it, the history, in order to understand the point that Paul's making. Remember, he's not making up some new doctrine. This is not a novel truth, but something that is found all over Scripture. This, this doctrine of election. It's found all over Scripture. But he goes back to the patriarchs to prove it. He could have went anywhere, but where does he go? He goes to the patriarchs. He goes to, if you will, the pinnacle of Israel. You say, what about the Jews? He goes back to the pinnacle of Israel, to the origins of Israel, and say, what you are trying to say didn't even apply to Abraham and his son. Or Isaac and his sons. Just because you were born an Israelite does not mean you're elect. 
So from the, your, the objection is what about Israel? He's showing you from the very beginning of Israel that just because you were a descendant didn't mean that you were Israel. And he's displaying that even the descendants of Abraham, you know, when Jesus comes along preaching, what do the Jews often say to him? We're, our father's Abraham. Well, he was your father, your forefather, but Paul's going back to actually to Abraham and his direct descendants. And saying, even though they were still in the womb and haven't done anything, it didn't mean that you were Israel. They're still in the womb. Didn't mean you're Israel. Just because you're of Israel. So Paul is not leaving this up to man's decision right here. Paul clearly knows, and I think we could all argue this, Paul clearly knows the character and attributes of God. God being omniscient means God knows everything, right? We all, we all agree with that. That's a, that's a foundational Christian doctrine. God is omniscient, yes and amen. God knows everything. But we know from Scripture that God knows everything because he decreed everything. It's not like he, he just, there's a knowledge out there that he must gain, and he has gained it, so therefore he knows everything. The knowledge that, that, that is out there is because he decreed the thing to happen. Therefore he knows it. Let's establish this thought from Scripture. Turn with me to Psalm 33. It's not very often your Bible turns right to where you need to go, but it worked for me. So I, I'm going to have to wait on y'all probably. <laughs> Psalm 33 and verse 10. It says, The Lord, Yahweh, nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation. That's strong language, right? That's something that we're afraid to say out in the marketplace today, right? That no matter what you say that you're going to do, God's counsel will stand. God's will will stand. Not yours. The plans of his heart from generation to generation. It says he frustrates the plans of the people. Y'all familiar with Psalm 2? Jason just read Psalm 2 yesterday, but it just popped in my head. That, you know, the people, they're, they're crying out against the Lord, and it says the Lord will laugh. Why? Because you're not sovereign. You're not little sovereign ones running around. You can't make war with the king of kings. The Lord shall laugh. Turn up to Proverbs 21. hard to read it from the NASB. So, uh, Proverbs 21 and verse 1. The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. Think God is sovereign? The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord and he turns it wherever he wishes, right? 
God does it. God turns his heart wherever he wishes. But the, I thought the king was sovereign. <laughs> He's not a little sovereign. He's no sovereign because the sovereign one has his hand in his, or his heart in his hand and turns it like the rivers of water. God is in, in control. God is sovereign. Men, now this is important. Men may think they're in control, but they are under the mighty hand of the sovereign God of the universe. And as in our case here in Romans 9, verse 11, it was established before the twins were even born. So God isn't waiting for the decisions to be made to make his decisions. Remember last week I had the point that Isaac was the son of promise before Isaac was. Remember that last week. He was the son of promise before he even existed. And God promised him before he even existed. 25 years before he existed. He promised him to a 75-year-old man that you're going to have a son of promise. And it wasn't until he was around 100 before he had that son of promise. So the son of promise existed before he, before he even was. And it's, this is the same truth that Paul is teaching here. The twins, in our text, the twins, Jacob and Esau, were chosen for what they were chosen for before they were even born. And as I mentioned also last week, I don't believe this to be done in time. Since all the decrees of God are eternal. Because He is eternal. So, He didn't wait until the twins were born and made their life decisions to decree what He so desired. He decreed it and brought the twins into existence to bring about His decree. You see that? That's clear from our text. It's not a plan B with God. God didn't have a plan B. There never was or never will be a plan B. From start to finish is plan A. And it was established in eternity past within the Godhead. It wasn't as though God created this world. And when Adam fell, he had to think of a way to fix it. Listen to this carefully. God decreed the fall of Adam without being the author of sin. Right? Yeah, he decreed the fall of Adam. It was established before the foundation of the world that Adam would fall. You say, that sounds unjust. Well, Paul anticipates that argument in this chapter as well. And we'll expound on it when we get there. But Paul's answer in, in short is this. The potter can do with the clay as he wishes and who are you to question him? He doesn't answer to you. He didn't come to you for your advice on how to run the world. He established it and decreed for sin to come into the world. But let us remember that sin came into the world for a greater purpose. As Joseph saw his brother's sin. Remember Joseph, his brother, sold him into slavery at the end when they come back to him and he's, he, he's high up in Egypt and they come back to him and he saw that their sin, you guys sold me into slavery and you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Did God decree for Joseph to be sold into slavery? Yes, he did. And he meant it for good. 
The sin of Adam as well. That sin of Adam that plunged humanity into sin will in turn bring about much good. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean because of Adam's failure, sin and death came as a result. And then the second Adam came without sin and became sin for us and died to be condemned in our place. Then rose from the grave defeating death. A much greater purpose came through the, the, his, his decreeing of sin also involved his decreeing of sending his son to save his people from their sins. That was the plan all along. The son was planned to come and redeem man before man ever existed. That thought goes way above our heads, does it not? But it has to be that way. If God is eternal and omniscient and his decrees are from eternity past, it's always been decreed. Nothing new. It wasn't after we had done good and evil, but before. God's decrees precede the actions of men. And this has to be the case. God is immutable. You know that term. It means he's unchanging. He never changes. Nothing about God ever changes. He's immutable. He is immutable. He is also omniscient, which means that he knows all things. And he is omniscient. And if he decreed the end from the beginning, as it tells us he did, it means that he knows all things because he decreed all things and he cannot change. To add to that, he's eternal. His decrees are eternal, never changing. And man cannot thwart his decrees. The decrees of an infinite God cannot come to naught through the decisions of a finite creature. That's what it just told us there in Psalm 33, did it not? That the Lord is going to frustrate your plans. We all know this, don't we? Practically, we know this, right? That we have plans. We have all these plans. We have these great plans. And then something happens. And it's the Lord saying, that's not the plan. You planned this, but I didn't plan that. The decrees of an infinite God cannot come to naught through the decisions of a finite creature. And if we would grasp this, oh, what comfort it would bring. That we can rest in the sovereignty of God. There's not, I can't think of a more com comfort bringing doctrine in all scripture than that God is sovereign and nobody can thwart his plans. If God plans something, he will do it and nobody can stop him. If he promises something, he will answer that promise and nobody can stop him. We can rest in the sovereignty of God. And we can repeat after Abraham. Remember he says, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? That's who we're resting in. We're not resting in, in some, some evil deity. We are resting in one that does right. One that is just. One that is holy. One that is loving, merciful, and gracious. And we rest in him. That's how we can know that what comes to us in this life comes to us through that lens, right? Through a gracious, loving, merciful God. 
life becomes much easier when you realize that you aren't in control of everything. That you actually don't have much control at all, right? You say, but I control what I eat, I control the people that I'm around, I control where I go. Yes, you may, but it's only because God decreed it in the first place. Nothing you do is outside the control and decrees of God. Let's look at one more clear verse. I kind of referenced it, but turn up to Isaiah in chapter 46. Mom. Mom. Uh, Isaiah 46, 9. You need to quit ignoring her. Isaiah 46, 9. It says, Remember the former, former things long past, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is no one like me. What comfort is that? Well, let's go on. Declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things which have not yet been done, saying, My purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my purpose from a far country. Truly I have spoken. Truly I will bring to pass. I have planned it. Surely I will do it. God declared the end from the beginning. Nothing is up to chance. God's purpose will stand. That's what he said. My purpose will stand. And he will accomplish all his good pleasure. Or you can say like Paul does in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 11. He says, it says of God, it says, who works all things after the counsel of his own will. You know, that cannot be spoken of anybody but God. Who works all things after the counsel of his own will. You may think that you do that, but you don't. Only the sovereign, omnipotent, immutable God does this. And that ought to cause us to worship. So God's decrees are before the decisions of men. Why? Because all of God's decrees are from eternity past, before man even existed. So, so the next point here. God's decree of election is unconditional. Look back here with me to Romans 9. It says, For though the twins were not yet born and had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose according to his choice might stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. The twins were not yet born. Let us remember for a second whose children they were. These were Isaac's twins, right? Isaac, what was Isaac called in the previous verses? The son of promise. He was the son of promise. He was the son through whom the Messiah was going to come. Now, obviously, generations later. But he was, he was the son of promise. We're talking about his twins. His sons. The, sons of pro, the son of promise. His twins. They were still in the womb and they hadn't done anything good or bad. The thought just popped in my head. There's a little side note, but 
What a condemnation of abortion there, right? They were in the womb. They were alive. They hadn't done good or bad yet, though, right? But God isn't looking at their actions. Let me stop here for a second and ask you. Why doesn't God wait? He, why didn't he just wait and look at their actions? Because Jacob and Esau are totally depraved. They were formed in iniquity, like David said. They were, by nature, children of wrath, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. If God were to wait and see their actions, all God would see would be sin. He wouldn't see one being holy and the other being sinful. He would see them both as being sinful. Why? Because though Isaac, the son of promise, was their father, Adam was still their father as well. And though they came from Isaac, who came from Abraham, they all came from Adam. They had a union with Adam, as all men do. Everybody born into this world is born with union with Adam. And in our union with Adam, we're spiritually dead in our sins. We are all completely sinful in Adam. So God doesn't look through the quarter of time to see who would choose him because nobody would. If he just sat back and looked and, and saw who would choose him and who would follow Christ, nobody would. Praise God he didn't do that. Romans 3 tells us, as we've already been through, that nobody seeks after God. Romans 8, that we just dealt with, was it maybe six months ago, says the natural man cannot obey God. So man doesn't seek after God. The natural man cannot obey God. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 tells us that, that the natural man cannot understand spiritual things. So you can't seek after God, you can't obey God, and you can't understand spiritual things. As a natural man. John 6, Jesus tells us, No man can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So, no man can. Notice these are all ability things, right? Cannot. A man cannot understand spiritual things. He cannot obey God. And he cannot come to Christ. It's all about ability. We don't have that ability. And we inherited this from our father, Adam. He was our federal head. He was our representative. When he sinned, all of humanity fell with him. So this is what God would see if he looked forward in time before he elected. And Paul proves it here by demonstrating that it was said to her, before they are born, the older shall serve the younger. Now let's keep in mind that when he said, when this was said, when it was said, the older will serve the younger, wasn't when the decree happened. But it being said at that time was to prove that God decreed from eternity past. So God chose Jacob but rejected Esau by divine decree and declared it to Rebekah when the children were in the womb. 
So the decree happened in eternity past, but he declared it to Rebecca when, when the children were in the womb. So in other words, God elected Jacob unconditionally before he was born. This is not just something that Romans 9 teaches us either. It's all over scripture. Let's look at a couple of scriptures on this. Turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy 7 verse 6. says, this is God talking to Israel, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you, look, notice, that's election there, the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other peoples, for you are the fewest of all peoples but because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers. The Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Let's turn, actually, you don't need to turn there. I'll just turn there to Psalm, same Psalm we were in earlier, Psalm 33. It's just the next verse. It says, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen for his own inheritance. Same thing. He, he chose them, right? He, God chose Israel. He elected them. Now, I know nobody has a problem with that, right? Nobody has a problem with Israel being called God's chosen people, even while he rejected the Philistines, the Egyptians, and the Edomites, which is clear from our text because Esau became the nation of Edom, and God rejected them. Nobody has a problem with that. Nobody has a problem when you say Israel is God's chosen people. They have a problem when you try to apply it today to the church, though. God chose the nation of Israel as a nation that would bring forth the Messiah, However, he also chose certain ones within that nation to salvation. Just because you're part of that nation as a whole did not mean that you were saved. But there, he chose that nation to have those laws and such to keep them pure, to keep them separate from other people. So the Messiah was going to come as a Jew. And then within that nation, he chose some unto salvation. And as Paul has already said, not all are Israel, which are of Israel. But that choosing was unconditional as well. That choosing of those Israelites, that was unconditional. He tells us that in Deuteronomy chapter 6 there, or chapter 7, verse 8. He said, he did not choose you because you're a greater number, but you are fewer than all people, but because the Lord loved you. That was the condition. That God chose us. For. He chose us out of his love. It actually tells us that, I believe, in uh, Ephesians 1, verse 4 and 5. It says, according as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. We're going to see this text later. but uh, That we should be holy and blameless before him. Then he says, in love he predestinated us. 
So the predestination and election come out of the love of God. It's unconditional to us. What did you do to deserve election? Nothing. How could you do it? Because it came from eternity past. You weren't there. It flows out of the love of God. He chose to love them. Why? Because he did. That's the answer. Not because of anything in them. Let's also notice that this isn't directed as a nation as a whole, but as those who are in Christ. That's what being of Israel truly was. Being in Christ. Believing in the Messiah. It wasn't about nationality, but about salvation. And that salvation, what happens when we come to the New Testament? It, is, it explodes into all, all the nations. So in the Old Testament, you had, you had salvation was found in Israel. You didn't go to Egypt to find salvation. You didn't go to the Philistines to find salvation. Salvation was within the nation of Israel. Not as though you had to be a part of that nation to be saved, but you had to believe in the coming Messiah and all the, the laws and everything pointed to the Messiah. It was all within Israel. And we come to the new covenant and what happens? Salvation is found in all nations. There's not one tiny nation where salvation is found, but it's found in all nations. Listen to Jesus to the woman of the well. He said, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The idea was there was a temple. You had to go to the temple to worship God. You had to go to Israel to worship God at the temple. Where's the temple at now? Everywhere. Christ, the, the, the temple was destroyed in 78, the physical temple, but Christ is a temple. And the church, by extension, is the temple. So the temple is everywhere now. It's not one little tiny building in Jerusalem. It's went everywhere. And when he says, but an hour is coming and now is, it was then. It was in that first century. The first century when worship is going to broaden to all nations. When the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth like the waters cover the seas. Let us remember who Paul was writing to they weren't Jews. They were Romans. So he was truly taking the gospel to all nations in that first century. He was truly doing what he was supposed to be doing. It, remember, the, the gospel and, and, and salvation was found in Israel. Christ comes, fulfills the law, dies, rises again, goes to the right hand of the Father, sends forth his spirit, who there, therefore sends forth his people into the world, into all nations. And Paul started going to all the nations right away. We've already, we saw this in our study on eschatology. That the gospel, according to Paul, has been preached to every creature. That it has been taken to all nations. But we are still to do so. So he was truly taking the gospel to all nations in the first century. 
it has begun. Let me say this. God's decree of election didn't change either. He elected mainly Jews to be saved under the Old Covenant and mainly Gentiles to be saved under the New Covenant. So let's see some other scriptures on this that, that, that was written to Gentiles. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. Ephesians 1.4 says, Just as you chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Notice where it's, when did he choose us? Before the foundation of the world. Remember who is this written to? Not Jews, Gentiles. Just as he had chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, to himself according to the kind intention of his will. So this is about the will of God. He chose us in him when? Before the foundation of the world. Turn. I got him kind of backwards, I guess. Uh, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Verse 26. Corinthians 126. It says, for, well, let me preface this before. Once again, Corinth, they weren't Jews. They were Gentiles. They were some very pagan Gentiles, too. But the Lord saved them. And he plants a church there in Corinth. He says, for, verse 26, for consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God, who, who did? God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. That's me. That's you. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not that he might nullify the things that are that no man should boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption that just as is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. That should teach us something about the doctrine of election right there. It should teach us that our boast is in ourselves. It's in God. God did it. He is chosen. Now we should, no man should boast before God. We can't say, I did this or I did that in order to be here. God chose. Unconditionally. Turn up to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Once again, I'm just establishing the thought that we know the Jews were elect people. And nobody ever has a problem with the Jews being God's chosen people. But they have a problem when you say the Gentiles are. Thessalonians written to Gentiles. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 But we should always give thanks to God for you. Brethren, beloved by the Lord, 
Because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. You know, I've quoted that verse many times to people that, that deny election. I just say, well, I just believe that God chose us from the beginning for salvation. And he's like, I don't believe that. All I did is quote the verse. Well, that's your interpretation. I didn't interpret anything. I just quoted it. So in other words, God unconditionally chose those Gentiles before the foundation of the world. To wrap this up, this point up, God has one people that he chose from eternity past unto salvation. He has one people. And it's made up of Jews and Gentiles. God does the choosing, and it's obviously not by our works or looking into the future to see who would believe, which is actually a ridiculous thought when you think about the eternality of God. It was based solely on his purposes and his will. It is unconditional that God elected you to salvation if you're saved. It wasn't because you were good, pretty, smart, wise, or as some argue, a certain skin color. It was because he desired to. That's it. When you, when you say, God, why would you save me? It has nothing to do with you. It's because he wanted to. That's the answer. He was going to be glorified in you in your salvation. So let's move on to the third point. God is the one who decrees. If that wasn't obvious in our text, I just said I'm still going to bring out some more of this. His decrees are unconditional because he is the one doing the calling. Not because of works, it says. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. That's what it says right there in the last portion of Romans 9-11. So in other words, the him who calls is the primary cause in this. The same primary cause, causer of all things, is the primary causer in this section of scripture. And I'd actually argue that it's not simply the primary causer, but the soul. S-O-L-E. Causer, the sole causer in salvation. God alone calls or elects. There's no secondary causer in the work of salvation. God does it all. Salvation is from God alone, for God's glory alone. It isn't that God casts his vote and Satan casts his vote and it's up to you to, to cast the deciding vote. That's blasphemy. But you, see, you see this, for lack of a better term, stupid meme of Jesus arm wrestling Satan. I don't want to get angry up here, so I'll just. It's not that God cast one vote, Satan cast the other, and you cast the deciding vote. The election was finished before the world existed. And at least two, th two things were true before the world existed. One, you didn't exist to make the deciding vote. And second, Satan didn't exist. To make a counter vote. God was all there was. Both you and Satan are creatures. And what is true of a creature? They're created. We are created. We are not created. Satan was, is, was created. He is not the creator. God didn't create before he created. 
in Genesis 1, right? This is why we say creation, you might have heard of it before, ex nihilo. Creation ex nihilo means out of nothing. God created out of nothing. God was all there was before creation. And that's when election took place. When there wasn't even a world yet. When you didn't exist yet. Satan didn't exist yet. When nothing existed besides God. That's when the election happened. You had no decision in the matter. No plea or thought. Because you didn't exist. God made the decree with no information outside of himself. And let me add this. That he is just in making the decree. Nothing that God does is unjust. Because he is just. We saw this early on in Romans. It says that he might be just and the justifier of him who believes in Christ Jesus. In Romans 3. So he is justice. And shall his creation, mind you, that love their sin, bringing, bringing accusation into the courtroom of God of being unfair or unjust. That's what we hear, right? Paul's going to be dealing with that very clear in Romans 9. But that's what we hear when you, when you talk about election. They say, well, that's not fair. That's unjust. To paraphrase Paul in the coming verses... And to quote our current president, will you shut up, man? That's pretty much what he's saying. Be quiet. You, don't, you can't come into the courtroom of God and say, why have you made me like this? You're unjust. You're unfair. We don't have that right. And I know we think we do. And this is why even when we're out talking to people and they want to bring God on trial, I'm not getting in that discussion. You don't have a right to say God should do this or God should act like this or God shouldn't do that. None of us do because we love our sin. We have no right to argue against God. God will not come into your courtroom to be put on trial. He makes his decrees after the counsel of his own will and everything he does is good and righteous and holy. You, man or woman, have never produced any of that. Apart from the grace of God. God is good and righteous and holy. And us fallen creatures have nothing of goodness, righteousness, and holiness. Which brings me to the last thing about this. The grace of God. Grace, by definition, cannot be demanded from anyone. You can't say, well, God should be gracious to every single person. Because then all of a sudden it's not grace anymore. Because grace is unmerited favor. You can't demand a favor. If it's given compository, then it's not a favor anymore. Which Paul deals with in the text when he says, not of works. This is the opposite of grace. And we'll see this when we, I think Romans uh, 11. That grace is the opposite of works. It might be a couple years before we get there, but we'll get there. If God has to give grace or elect us based on something that we do, believe, are, or might be, then it is no longer grace and it is no longer unconditional election. It's actually the opposite of what the text says. The, the direct opposite of what the text says. 
Let me tell you, be careful with someone's theology when it says the absolute opposite of what the text says. The verse says that before they were born, or they had done any good or evil, God elected them. It wasn't in response. It wasn't that God saw their good or evil. It simply flowed out of the purpose of God. He is the one who decreed. And let me add this before I close. The doctrinal portion, of course. This, this decree finds its yes and amen in the person and work of Christ. What do I mean by that? Well, God didn't simply decree to save a people and then voila, they're saved. He decreed also the means by which he would save them. There was a means by which you are saved if you are saved today. And it, the means was not election. That was, that was part of, that was, that was him decreeing that you would be saved. The means was to come and take on flesh. To become a man. Be born of a woman. To live under the law. To live under that law that you and I break all the time. Still, even, I have a regenerate heart and I still break the law. That's what Paul dealt with in Romans chapter 7. Yet he came, took on flesh, and fulfilled the law. Kept every single jot and tittle of the law. All of it. Never once failed. Only did that which is good. He did what the first Adam couldn't do. Or didn't do, I should say. He kept the law perfectly. He fulfilled righteousness. He earned righteousness. And then he died for our sins. He died for our sins. Those sins that when God says don't do this and we do it. He died for those. For his elect. That's where he says he shall save his people from their sins. He was coming to save his people from their sins. Not every person from their sins. But his people from their sins. And he rose from the grave. Defeating death. That's one of the, the, the greatest truths that we can, we can get into our minds. Is that death is gone for us. That's how the, uh, Paul can write in 1 Corinthians 15. Oh death where is thy sting? Oh grave where is thy victory? It's gone. For the Christian it's gone. And this is why you all hear me quote all the time. John chapter 11 when, when Jesus was raising Lazarus from the dead. He, he said to Lazarus' sister that if you believe in me you'll never die. And he said, do you believe this? If you believe in me, you'll never die. Guess what, elect of God? You'll never die. So Christ did that. And that was the means by which the decree finds its fulfillment. Without this, man is still lost. So you say, then how do I know if I'm elect? If it's election, if God chose from eternity past, how do I know if I'm elect? That's one of the easiest questions to answer in, in theology. Believe the gospel. How do I know I'm elect? Believe the gospel. Do you believe the gospel? Yes, you're elect. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Only the elect believe and all the elect believe. 
Our rest is not found in saying we're elect or believing we're elect. Our rest is found in believing in Jesus Christ, which dovetails right into my application portion of this. So the first point of application is a call to faith and repentance. And as always, I address the unbelievers sitting in here, those that don't know Christ. If you don't know Christ, or you're like, I don't know if I know Christ. Who's this Christ you're talking about? Well, I know the name. Mom and dad believe in him. My friends believe in him. My spouse believes in him, but I don't know him. This is your calling this morning. And it's not of works. Just as it says right there in Romans chapter 9. It's not of works. You can't trust your works. It's not about your good works that get you saved. It's about the person and work of Jesus Christ. Look to Him. He's the only one that can save you from your sins. I know it's popular to say there's many roads to heaven, right? That's blasphemy. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. There's one way to heaven, and it's through Jesus Christ. And if you don't repent of your sins and believe upon Him, you're not going. And there's not a person sitting in here that's been born again that wants that for anybody else sitting in. He's the only one that can save you from your sins. Your works can't and won't. Only He can. And as I say often, you're not here by accident. As was already said, God decrees all things. And He's decreed for you to be here today. But I don't know. I don't like I don't like I hate God. He's decreed for you to be here today. And to hear the gospel message. And to hear the preaching of His word. And to see God's people joyous singing to Him. Don't leave here without believing upon Jesus. He said his sheep will hear his voice and follow him. And I pray you're one of his sheep this morning. And God may grant you a new heart of repentance and faith to look upon him. Now to the believers here. Remember this is our faith. Call to faith and repentance. Let me ask you all a question. And you don't have to answer out loud. Do you believe... That God decreed all things before the world was. Isn't that what the text, the text would clearly teach us that? And many other texts teach us that. Do you believe so? If so, do you live like it? By that I mean, are you resting in his sovereignty? Or are you out here all stressed out and anxious? Because you don't have all things in control. I know the latter is actually true of us. More often than not, isn't it? We're all stressed out because we don't have everything in control because the house isn't perfect the way we want it to look or, or my job's not the way that I want it to be or, or some relationship isn't going the way I want it to be. It's all out of control and I'm stressed. When we're anxious and stressed out about all things that aren't perfect in our control, we're actually in sin for this. That's actually sin. Now I do know there's diets and other stuff that can cause anxiety and stress. But I'm talking about when you're anxious and stressed out because you don't have everything in control. We are commanded. It's actually a command. It says be anxious for nothing. 
Why? Because you don't control, control stuff anyways. Are you a control freak? All I can do is say stop it. That's what we're supposed to do. Stop it. Don't be a control freak. You're not in control anyways. You're placing, listen to this, you're placing yourself in the realm of a deity as though you are God yourself. Now I'm not talking about this let go, let God thing, which is often times used to say it's okay to not do what God's called us to do. But you're not the one on the throne. He is. He's the sovereign one who controls all things. To quote R.C. Sproul, he says, and y'all probably know this quote, if there is one maverick molecule in all the universe, then God is not sovereign, and if God is not sovereign, he is not God. He's in control of everything. Even if, you know, if we have atoms and stuff, we don't even see them. They're out here. God's in control of all of them. You start looking out the vastness of space, and you're like, God's in control of all of it. Everything. Even the stuff that we can't even see yet. <clears throat> Are we so far detached from actually believing in the sovereignty of God that we forget this? And he's in control. And we're stressed out. We're anxious. Do we not see the birds of the air? The tiniest of insects being taken care of? And we think the pinnacle of his creation would be left to his own devices? Brethren, God is not only in control, but as Peter says, this is actually a command also, cast your cares upon him because he cares for you. So the one who is in control, the sovereign one of the universe says, cast your cares upon him because he cares for you. God cares for you. Elect. The one who is in control cares for you. And as we saw in Romans chapter 8, previously, that he works all things together for your good. He had to be sovereign to do that, right? To work all things? Only a sovereign God could do that, and he does. You have no need to be anxious if you're trusting him. And let me add this as well, though this could be another point of doctrine. Just because God decrees all things from eternity past does not mean that we're like the deist. I don't know if y'all are familiar with deists. God created, kind of cast out, and he's way back here, and you don't have no access to God. That's not what our God is. God is intimately involved in your life, brethren. He's actually here in our midst right now. I know we don't think that, do we? We, we come show up, all we see is the faces and everything. We see the physical. But, but scriptures declare that he's in our midst right now. He dwells in the midst of his people. He's here with us. He's here with you right now. And listen, this is a... Should blow our minds. But right now, you could say a prayer to God in your mind, and he could answer your prayer. You can't do that with me. Sometimes you can even tell me the prayer and I might still mess it up. But you say your prayer to God, even when you don't even have the words to speak as we dealt with in Romans chapter 8, the Spirit groans within us. So he's in our midst right now and He cares for us. So cast your cares upon Him now. You don't need to wait. 
And he hears and answers his people. So we ought to believe. What we ought to believe is that the sovereign one of the universe is here with us and he cares for us. He is producing good in your life. Now you may be, and oftentimes, this is through trials and tribulations. It's not through the easy life, right? God produces our good through trials and tribulations. Through, through stuff going, happening bad to us. The stuff that we want to control, but we have no control over. Those trials and tribulations that come work together for our good. We ought to thank God for them. I forgot I put that in my notes and I prayed it this morning. We ought to thank God for our trials and tribulations. Because we can, and we should count it all joy. As it tells us in the book of James. Count it all joy as we cast our cares upon Him. And repent of thinking that we are little gods in control of everything. When we're actually in control of nothing. Pardon. Last point of practice application here, practical application is our call to war. And I have this point of application every week, and you may wonder why. Well, let me ask you, have you seen those movies, like the war movies or st stuff like that, where, where it seems that all is lost? It may seem like this battle is going to be too much. There's too many enemies, and they are too powerful, and there is no hope. Y'all saw the movies like that? They always had they always had the movies like that, right? Lord of the Rings, and all your all your great ones are like that. Looks like it's lost and there is no hope. And all of a sudden the warrior stands up in the midst of the people and gives them this great speech, which in turn empowers the people. And even though they're just peasants, they're fighting with like uh, pots and pans and spatulas and spoons against an army, and somehow they win the fight. They go out to battle. That's what this is about. You have been given doctrine, teaching about God and His ways. Now it's time for you to go out to battle with that knowledge. It's not just some intellectual exercise we do, but it's to get that knowledge to take it forth in the next week, at least, into war. We are to go out into war. We fight a war out there in the world, brethren. We come together on the Lord's Day with the brethren, not to go through the motions, right? Hopefully that's not why we're here. We just checked that thing off. I did that Sunday morning. Not to go through the motions, but to get some rest and to recharge for the coming battle. Isn't it great if we... We thought more like this, but today is the first day of the week. And we start our week today. <coughs> Tomorrow, which is the second day of the week, we might go to our secular job, right? But we come together on the first day of the week to be rested and recharged and ready to go forth into battle until the second day of the week. And then third and fourth and fifth. And it depends on if we have a Wednesday service, we come back together and rest and recharge again. So that's what we do this for. So we must ask ourselves, are we preparing for battle this morning? Is that what we're here for? Prepared for battle? Or are we just daydreaming? You know, the preacher, he's long-winded. Long preacher's long-winded today. So I'm over here daydreaming. Going through the motions just so I can get that checklist done. Just so I can say I went to church on Sunday. 
It's time to fight. And I mean physically. But we're in spiritual warfare. And if you don't believe me, all you got to do is go turn on the news. I typically don't watch the news just because it's so depressing. You'll see one thing after another that displays that righteousness needs to go forth. That though we know the battle has been won by Christ. Amen. We go forth with that message for the kingdom's sake. Christ, as it says in Psalm 110 and Paul quotes in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, Christ must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The field is ready. But the laborers are few. We talked about this yesterday. You know you're called to be a laborer? If you're in Christ, you're called to be a laborer. You're not called to just come to church. You're called to be a laborer. And, and what Scripture says, an ambassador. Don't know what an ambassador is? It's a person from, from, it's like, if I was to represent the United States in China, I would be stationed in China, but I'm representing the United States. I'm the representative. That's what you are today for the kingdom of heaven. You're an ambassador for the kingdom of heaven here on earth. This is not our land. It's not our home. You're sent forth from heaven into an alien land with a message from a kingdom that far surpasses a kingdom here. Any kingdom here. So go forth with that message. And tie this kind of back into what was brought up. When you're going forth to that message, how do you know you're preaching to God's elect? Well, that's not your job. That, just, that shouldn't matter to you. You know, I think, I'll tell you this, I think this often when I'm preaching, when I'm evangelizing. I believe every person I'm talking to is God's elect. He, might, he probably won't save him right here in front of me, but I believe God's going to save him. Now, I'm probably wrong. I'm probably most likely wrong. I believe that. I believe God. If I give him the gospel message, God's going to save him. But it's not my job to find out if they're elect or not. Listen to Charles Spurgeon on this. Y'all probably heard this quote before, too. If God would have painted a yellow stripe on the back of the backs of the elect, I would go around lifting shirts. But since he didn't, I must preach whosoever will, and when whatsoever believes, I know that he is one of the elect. Don't go around looking for yellow stripes. But go forth with a message, indiscriminately, resting in the fact that the sovereign God says he will save his people from their sins. It's not up to you to determine who should be or could be his people. It's up to you to preach. As it says, I'll close this with Romans chapter 10, verse 13 through 15. It says, For who, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. How then shall they call upon him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring glad tidings of good things. Do you have beautiful feet, Christian? You do if you take the gospel out. That's what it says. And don't get discouraged or give up. Keep going. You may actually never see one of God's elect repent and believe. You may never see, you may spend your whole life, you may preach to thousands upon thousands upon thousands and not physically see it with your own eyes, somebody repent and believe. 
But know this. They will. God is sovereign. And he will not fail in saving his people from every kindred, tribe, tongue, and nation. As it tells us in Revelation chapter 5 verse 9. He will save his people from their sins. Go forth with that message. Amen.